Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. It's good to see you both. Good to see you, Avi. Hey, guys. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to investigate why testing for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome can be falsely elevated in the setting of active inflammation. So Hannah, how did you get interested in this question? Okay, well, I love talking about coagulation in any context, um, but this is a question that became really important to me when I had a patient who had had antiphospholipid antibody set testing done about a decade prior in the setting of an active clot. And this patient had had never formally been made had the diagnosis of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, but because the testing had been done during a, a period of active inflammation, she had been sent out on warfarin, and she had spent a year doing INR, or excuse me, a decade doing INR checks and being on warfarin when she may maybe could have been on a. a oral anticoagulant because the testing had not been followed up and because of confusion around the diagnosis of this syndrome. And so that got me really interested in the question of like, why why should we not send antiphospholipid antibody testing during active inflammation? And how exactly do we diagnose the syndrome? Had you guys heard about this idea that like we shouldn't send antiphospholipid testing when someone has active inflammation? I, I've heard that you shouldn't send and testing during active clot. That's how it always been phrased to me. So the, just the idea that I should be reframing my thinking to don't send this testing during active inflammation, that is already novel for me and makes me want to learn more about, <laughs> like, why didn't I know that? Yeah, I had, like, always heard this and never quite, know, like, no one had really told me why. Um, I always heard, don't send it during an active clot. And so today I'm going to kind of walk you guys through how we diagnose the syndrome and walk through a, a what I think is a pretty interesting um, explanation with some interesting data behind it for why it might be inflammation that causes the false positive test and why we should not send the testing in the context of active inflammation or a clot. So it might be valuable for the audience to remind us all a bit about APS just generally, because it's not a diagnosis that I think many of us see very often. Yes. So antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, or APS or APLAS, is a syndrome of recurrent thrombosis, so classically either venous or arterial, and pregnancy miscarriages that are associated with antibodies against specific phospholipids or phospholipid binding proteins. And those are most commonly beta-2 glycoprotein 1, cardiolipin, and prothrombin, or associated with one of kind of a heterogeneous group of coagulation factor inhibitors called lupus anticoagulants. So any of those can contribute to the diagnosis of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. But you just said that this is a prothrombotic state, and you didn't mention the diagnosis of, you know, lupus anywhere in there. So... How did we end up with the name lupus anticoagulant? That seems like a very confusing name. Yeah, I'm going to say that this is going to be an episode full of misnomers. Um, so to answer both of those questions separately, the first, the, the first is the question of why it's named lupus anti or lupus, um, and 
lupus or systemic lupus erythematosus SLE can be associated with lupus anticoagulant, but it can also come from any variety of events that trigger the immune system. So infections, autoimmune conditions, malignancy, and even a couple of uh, drug reactions. So like penicillin, procainamide, chlorpromazine. Uh, can can be associated. So lupus anticoagulant is one subtype of the syndrome, but altogether, all of the sort of parts of the syndrome are called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Now, to the anticoagulant part, as opposed to the procoagulant part, that is like the crux of what we're going to talk about tonight. The key for all of these different, either the beta-2, cardiolipin, or lupus anticoagulants, is that they can come with a prolongation of the activated partial thromboplastin time, or APTT, even though what they actually represent in the body is a procoagulable state. So why in the world would something that makes your blood more likely to clot prolong your PTT? That just makes no sense. Yes. Okay, so the like the the theme of the night, if I had to sum up one lesson that I learned from this concept, it is that in vivo veritas. So the in vivo and in vitro testing is pretty different. So in vivo, an antibody against phospholipids floating around could create a hypercoagulable state through like a couple different mechanisms. But if you think about it, it is just floating around, inducing endothelial injury against all of those phospholipids. It's activating platelets by like binding to phospholipids on the surface and complement. It's interacting with coagulation factors like prothrombin that we just talked about. And so that would make you pretty hypercoagulable in vivo. In vitro, though, None of that is there. We're not like floating around in a beautiful membranous environment. Instead, what we have is how we test the APTT, the activated prothrombin time. So when we check a PTT, what we're trying to do is check the intrinsic clotting cascade outside of the body. We draw the test into a tube with citrate, and that citrate is going to bind up all of the calcium in the sample to prevent the clotting cascade from getting going. Then we set the lab test up with all of, with our stopwatches ready, and we reintroduce calcium and artificial phospholipids into the sample so that we can very precisely measure how fast a clot forms. So if you imagine our antiphospholipid antibody is floating around interfering with all these phospholipids that we just added, and you'll actually slow down the activation of the clotting and falsely prolong your test. Okay, so APS is an example of a condition where the the APTT is going to be prolonged. But it's not the only condition, obviously, that prolongs the APTT. I mean, there's on a daily basis, I'm giving heparin agents that's prolonging, prolonging the, the APTT. So how do we distinguish between APS and these other causes of prolonged uh, PTT? Yeah, and the really interesting thing is that it's the cause of an APPT, APTT prolongation that's actually reflective of like a clinical clotting syndrome. Um, so to diagnose APLAS or antiphospholipid syndrome, you have to have a clinical criteria and a lab criteria. So the clinical criteria is a clot or multiple spontaneous abortions or a preeclampsia or placental insufficiency. And the lab criteria, it's really key, are two positive tests for an antiphospholipid antibody at least 12 weeks apart. So two positive tests, 12 weeks apart. 
there are two big picture types of lab tests that we have to diagnose this syndrome. Uh, the first one is direct, and the second type is indirect. So in direct tests, we literally just measure how much of specific types of antiphospholipid antibodies that we have. And those are specifically anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1 um, and anti-cardiolipin. And for those kind of lupus anticoagulant type parts of the test that we can't really like pin, pinpoint exactly what they're an antibody to, we have to use an indirect test to prove that there is some phospholipid-dependent prolongation of your PTT. So what we said earlier was that the reason that the PTT is prolonged in a lupus anticoagulant is that it's binding up that reagent, the phospholipid, in your sample that you're using to sort of measure your time. And so similarly, the way that we measure this is we add a bunch of phospholipid to the test and see if that neutralizes the antibodies and fix the problems. The other way that you can test it is you use a reagent like silica that's not effective, uh, not affected by antiphospholipid antibodies. Or you could always use my favorite test in hematology, the dilute Russell Viper venom test, in which we use the uh, venom of the Deboya Russellii viper. Excuse me, did you just say using a snake's or a, a viper's venom to do a hematological test? Is that what you just and said? This is why hematology <laughs> is the most metal specialty. Yeah, please, please, you have to expand on that. Yeah, the metal is iron. Um, yes. So <laughs> this is like one of my favorite tests. It turns out that people, you know, noticed that this um, that this viper in Sri Lanka had been associated with a lot of thrombosis um, as probably its mechanism of action, and so they used the venom of this viper, the the Russell viper venom, uh, to speed up the assay and they basically then use the, that, that like sort of sped up version of the assay to assess whether uh, a blood sample corrects with the phospholipid or if you add normal plasma. I'll, I'll link in the show notes to <laughs> some examples of studies of the uh, physiologic effects of Russell Viper venom. I'm just imagining, you know, hey, intern, can you go gather some Russell Viper venom for us so we could do some testing for APS. Um, I don't, <laughs> I would not want to be in charge of doing that. So um, I was not able to confirm this, uh, but uh, it does seem that some some places cite this idea that it was used like way, way back when as like a cure for minor scrapes and like minor cuts, like in shaving and stuff. Uh, huh. It's Russell Viper Venom and that's how it like entered the popular imaginary. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, you know. <laughs> everyone thinks of Russell Viper venom in their their usual daily conversations. Um, well, the, the hematologists like you, I'm, I'm I'm sure do. But I feel like we have to go back to this original question of you know why you know inflammation is leading to the you know false elevation in some of these tests in in, in the setting of a you know acutely um, uh, inflamed or acutely ill patient. You know, unless they were in Sri Lanka and were bitten by one of these snakes, which I suspect is a pretty rare event. Surprisingly common. Uh, but again, we'll link to the literature on that. Uh, okay, but there are two reasons other than snake bites. Um, the first is us, uh, and the second is the critical illness itself. So I'll just kind of briefly say that most people who have an active clot 
we are giving an anticoagulant to. Um, and if not corrected for correctly, um, things like warfarin, low molecular weight heparin, and direct oral anticoagulants all can affect the testing um, and can lead to a false positive, particularly if they're not corrected for or if we don't use an absorbent to try and um, reduce the effect of the oral anticoagulant. Maybe more interesting, though, is the critical illness itself or the acute inflammation itself. And so the I think a really helpful study is one that was done in Austria in the 90s, and they looked at 51 critically ill patients who did not have an underlying coagulopathy liver problem, and they were not on therapeutic anticoagulation during their time in the intensive care unit. I want, I want you guys to guess, out of these 51 patients who are in an intensive care unit, how many developed a... Um, a positive APS testing. Avi, why don't you set the line and then I'll take the over or the under. <laughs> this is like uh, Price is Right. Um, I'm going to guess 10%. Okay. So I would have probably guessed somewhere around 10 to 15%. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take the over, but just by a small number. Yeah. So it was 27 out of 51 patients developed positive testing. They tested them every day for like the full complement of tests. And 27 patients out of 51 uh, developed like a prolonged PTT and then a confirmatory test. Interestingly, um, everybody, so remember we talked about the direct pathway and the indirect pathway to test as having an antiphospholipid antibody. Nobody had positive, like a positive direct test that said, we are measuring an elevated amount of anti-cardiolipin or anti-beta-2 glycoprotein. Instead, everybody had positive indirect tests. So the prolonged PTT and then confirmatory testing. And none of the patients had thromboembolic complications. For 63% of the patients, the prolongation in, in the PTT resolved spontaneously while they were in the ICU. And then for almost everybody else, it resolved within four weeks. I'm honestly shocked that that many ICU patients did not have a clot at all. Yeah, no kidding. Especially if they, I mean, if it doesn't seem like they were on anticoagulant, you'd think that for like DVT prophylaxis, you'd think they would all have a DVT after some point. You know, it's interesting because th this discussion reminds me a little bit of, you know, syphilis testing where we have the direct treponemal tests and then we have the sort of indirect tests like RPR. And the RPR is notorious for just being a very messy test with a lot of false positive, tons of conditions. I think lupus is actually one example. Lupus anticoagulant it. is. Yeah. So, so it's like you know the same kind of phenomena where you know because there's no perfect test, you get a little bit of the direct, you get a little bit, a little bit of the indirect, and you kind of have to you know put a a puzzle together to make the diagnosis. But that makes you susceptible to false positive diagnoses. This is also a really elegant study, I think, in terms of, you know, looking at because presumably these people did not have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, right? Um, and so they were able to sort of prove that this is like linked to inflammation. You know, these these critically ill patients are acutely inflamed and completely spurious. <laughs> And a false positive, not reflecting reality that they actually, ha you know, they don't have this syndrome. So I think it's a really, really elegant study. But why did all these critically ill patients have positive indirect testing for, for APS? Yeah, I just, and then like, there's also population studies that show like a pretty high prevalence of, of like positive testing for both, anyway, like up to 5% um, in some populations. But 
uh, why, why the positive indirect testing in these obviously acutely ill patients? They looked at a couple of different factors, sort of associated just basically lab parameters and then organ function uh, and then the sort of components of the illness. They found no difference in patients' renal function, sort of determining whether or not they developed this, no change in the liver function. The only lab test that actually affected whether or not you were found to have a, a LAC or this sort of like positive testing was CRP. And the average patient with um, with a, a, a prolonged PTT had a CRP of 14.7, and the average patient without had a CRP of 6. The, those patients were also more likely to have sepsis as sort of their overall clinical syndrome, and they got what uh, the study described as catecholamine treatment, which I was really delighted by, which we would we would probably just call pressors, um, but uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, or dobutamine. I really want you, Avia, next time you're rounding to say, let's let's begin the catecholamine treatment. Yes, infuse the catecholamines. <laughs> but so, are are you saying that? CRP itself is causing these false positives, lupus anticoagulant testing? Please say you are. Please say you are. Okay. So I would understand why you would be skeptical because saying that like CRP being elevated goes with another marker of what we're saying is probably associated with acute inflammation is a is a pretty not tight, like causative association. It's hard to necessarily say these two things go together and it's a causative, causative thing. But there is another really cool study, maybe like a decade later, the trail picks back up in 2010. And these, these investigators looked at, there had been kind of a couple other observational studies in the meantime. But they actually, so the first thing that they did is they refound that 39, they, they looked at patients who had had a transitively positive LAC and then compared positive and negative samples between those very patients and found that the positive LAC was, uh, samples, so the time that they were more acutely inflamed, was more likely to have an elevated CRP um, versus the negative samples. And then what they did is they took normal human plasma, just like donor plasma, and they spiked human CRP into it and then did all of the testing again. And what they found was that CRP, that PTT became elevated above a CRP level of about 2.4 milligrams per deciliter. And then it increased proportionally with the concentration of CRP in the sample. So in order to kind of solve the problem of the in vitro assay being unreliable, they went back to in vitro and found that the CRP was interfering and prolonging the assay. And so it turns out that CRP, in fact, is an acute phase protein that has an affinity for phospholipids itself, and particularly phosphatidylcholine. And so, and they found that depending on which reagent for the test they used, the CRP would or would not interact with the test. I will note that the dilute Rep Russell Viper venom test was not fooled by CRP. But of course. Yes, the ultimate test. No, but really what they found was that the CRP was directly interfering with the assay and they were able to show it in vitro. I'm kind of shocked that they could see this interference at levels as low as 2.4 milligrams per deciliter. I mean, that's not a particularly elevated CRP level. Um, and I know that sounds like, you know, as that CRP increased, the the interference increased, but that yeah, that's not that high. 
It's totally not. Although it was not like it was like a little out of the normal range, but not so much that I would necessarily think that we that we might send additional testing. Um, but yeah, I like. I don't know why we're not looking at this in larger data sets. Yeah, you know, and it's it interesting so much. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I think this is probably an irrelevant comment, but I'm gonna I'm gonna mention it because we're talking about something called lupus anticoagulant and and CRP. But if I, I think I remember correctly that lupus is one of those conditions where there's a disproportionately low CRP in patients who are inflamed compared to their ESR. Right? You know, the patients with lupus for whatever reason have a higher ESRs when they're inflamed and their CRP doesn't budge all that much. I, I see Avi, you're kind of nodding your head. You've heard something similar. I mean, maybe that makes it possible that they won't have these false positives as often. I, I don't know. Um, but this is, this is really fascinating. It's something I've, I've certainly never heard before. I've never heard of CRP interfering with any assay. Um, uh, and makes me a little bit worried that <laughs> Maybe it's interfering with others. I also just love how not hand wavy this is. This is not right. hand wavy at all because there is a temptation of like, oh, they're inflamed. It's going to sort of throw off the test. But we don't really fully understand. But it seems like if you add CRP into this assay, you get the exact same effect. Yeah, we found the humor. We right. found the ill yeah, humor. The evil that humor. Is the evil the humor steps. is CRP. Yeah. Um, so so I, does this go yeah. back? To you know why the the recommendations for testing are so kind of frustrating, like test them now, test them again, like do all these things. Like is is this part of the reason for that, Hannah? Totally. So I think one of the key things from all of these studies is that they had like the test of time, and we see that for most of these patients after the acute illness, the the testing abnormality resolves as it had for my patient um, when we eventually retested. A decade later, and and similarly that this resolved in the second study that that looked at those thirty nine patients, so that is why the like twelve week confirmatory testing is so important. And like when someone comes in and they are acutely sick, you like want to send all of this lab testing, and it's you know it's like such a good lesson to me of like taking a little bit of time and trusting that the outpatient uh, outpatient workup will occur, and so. The the real reason that the that the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis recommends that you send them during an acute illness is if you really think that there's catastrophic APS or if you think that there's a new acute stroke and you have a pretty high clinical concern for the syndrome. And those would be reasons why you would change your upfront uh, anticoagulation plan. Yeah, it's you know, in in vivo veritas, like you said. Uh, but you taught us some pretty cool stuff, including about viper venom and and that CRP is the particular evil humor in this case that we're thinking about. But is there anything, any other interesting facts that you learned along the way as you were learning about this topic? Yeah, we covered a clot. Um, the, the only other thing that I would add is that factor eight um, is also an acute phase reactant and can actually give you a false negative test, uh, which is another reason not to send it during the acute phase, which is brought up in the guidelines as well. So there's there's like a lot of reasons not to. Uh, so basically, my take home is never do any coagulation testing ever, and because you just can't trust it. Yeah, definitely not thrombophilia testing. <laughs> you just gotta let the dust settle, folks. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And All that's right, Hannah, the ESR. Uh, why don't you give us some take home points? 
Yeah, absolutely. So take on point number one, in vivo veritas. This was a really good reminder for me that not every lab test is a reflection of what is going on inside the body. Uh, The second is that APS testing can be falsely elevated during an acute illness because of inflammation and interference of CRP with the PTT and some of the confirmatory assays. And because of that, my third takeaway is don't send APS testing during an acute event unless you have a really high suspicion for catastrophic APS or APS causing a new stroke. And you need to make an urgent decision on anticoagulation with that in mind. Fantastic. So that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Curious Clinicians.